All right, if you could open up in your copy of God's holy and perfect word to uh, the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 3. Psalms, you can find pretty much smack dab in the middle of your Bible. And so if you're looking to find where the Psalms are, you can pretty much thumb right in the middle of it and you'll, you'll run eventually into the Psalms there. Psalm 3. Uh, is in many regards uh, the true beginning of the book of Psalms. And we'll talk about that here in just a moment, but uh, let, me, let me read the passage for us this morning, and then we'll ask God's blessing on it. Psalm 3, a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him and God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Let's pray. Father, would you help us to understand your word rightly? Would you help us to get a confidence in who you are as God and what you have done as God? Lord, we know that when you are on our side, we know we have nothing to worry about. And so, Father, would you begin to kindle a flame within us by which we can trust ourselves in you, that we can trust our situations in you, and that you would get great glory and honor for being the God of our lives. And it's in his name, Lord, that I ask this. Amen. Well, Psalm 3 is in many regards the beginning of the book of Psalms. Psalms 1 and 2 uh, basically function as an introduction to the book of Psalms. And when you begin in Psalm 3, you begin to see a lot of the familiar styles that you see throughout all of the other Psalms. Psalm 3 is the first Psalm to use the term Selah. Uh, the, the term Selah, we don't exactly know what that term means. Scholars aren't, aren't necessarily uh, together on that. We think it's some sort of a, a musical uh, note in order for uh, the person who's leading the worship to, to know where to break up certain places in the music. But it's the first psalm here that we see the word Selah. Psalm 3 is also the first time that we see one of the psalms being attributed to an author. And in this case, it is David who was the greatest king king that Israel had known. Psalm 3 is also the first psalm to ascribe a particular occasion by which uh, David wrote this psalm. And here in this particular psalm, we find that, uh, when, uh, Dave, that he wrote this when he was on the run for his life. 
and he is not fleeing from some foreign governmental uh, military in order to get away from them as Israelites. Rather, David in this psalm is on the run from Absalom, his very son. And if David was honest, he would say that the reason that he is fleeing for his life was his own fault. Many years prior to this event, David had committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba. And this adulterous encounter ended up uh, having Bathsheba become pregnant. And in an effort to cover up this, uh, this relationship that had taken place, uh, David had ordered Bathsheba's husband, whose name was Uriah, to come back home and to sleep with his wife so that he would be convinced that this child that Bathsheba is with was actually his. And when Uriah refused to leave his military unit for such a reason as that, David came up with the plan to murder Uriah. David ordered Uriah to be placed at the front lines of the army where the heaviest fighting would be, where casualties are heavy, and Uriah's death was certain. And that's what happened. Uriah was killed, and David was to be blamed. And though David would repent of these actions, the effects of his sin would have enormous impacts on his family, particularly in the areas of sexuality, power, and pride. David had a daughter whose name was Tamar, and in 2 Samuel 13, she was raped by David's own son, Amnon. When news reached David's ear, Though the text tells us that David was very angry, David did nothing. He let it go. But there was one who would do something about it, Absalom, who was Tamar's brother. He quietly plotted Amnon's murder and was successful in carrying it out. And after that murder, he flew to a town called Geshur. And the thing that's important to know about Absalom is that he was incredibly charismatic. He had a personality that easily drew people to him. And that's not necessarily a bad thing to have a charismatic personality. But when you mix a charismatic personality with a vindictive spirit, a lust for power, and an environment where all of those things can grow and be fostered, you have a recipe for a potentially disastrous situation. And when Absalom returned to Jerusalem, he began campaigning. And very quickly, he had turned the heart of all Jerusalem against David and turned their hearts rather to himself. 
Even some of David's closest allies had turned on David and joined in Absalom's rebellion. Absalom's rebellion became so, uh, so big and so large that his power and his popularity went beyond Jerusalem and rather reached to the far corners of all Israel. All tribes of Israel were following Absalom at this point. They proclaimed him as king. He took power of the Israelite, uh, control of the Israelite military and began working his way to Jerusalem in order to take out the one remaining obstacle to his power, King David, his father. This now sets the tone for our text. David, the true king of Israel, is running for his life in the middle of the night, barefoot with no provisions. And not only does he have Absalom and his army after him, but there's nowhere that he can run to. Any town that he can go to or flee to will turn David in the moment he enters it. David has nowhere to go, and he is completely out of resources. What do you do when the world seems to be against you? What do you do when your friends betray you? When your marriage seems like it's going south, when, when the bills can't get paid, when you're so lost in anxiety that you can't see straight, when your world all around you seems to be collapsing and becoming unraveled, what do you do in those times? You do exactly what David did in this psalm. You go to the Lord. And it doesn't matter if it's the worst crisis that you've ever faced or the most minuscule problem. When the Lord is on your side, it is not as bad as it could be. When the Lord is on your side, You don't have anything to worry about. When the Lord is on your side, you can rest knowing that you don't need to take your situation into your own hands because God cares more about you and He cares more about your situation than you could ever care and He is more capable of taking care of it. So how do we go to the Lord with the troubles of our day? I believe that David gives us three ways in which we should do that. First, we should bring our concerns to the Lord. Bring your concerns to the Lord. For many of us, when life gets difficult, our default is to complain. Our default is to complain about our situations. And David is no different here. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of, my, uh, saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. 
So David is in a tough situation here. He's got enemies and opposition all around him and growing greater by the day. And he is certainly not exempt from complaining. But notice, however, where David lodges his complaint. He doesn't go around town seeking to find someone who will listen to his complaining in order to agree with him or to take pity on him or to grow more people on his side. He doesn't waste time or energy going to people and sources that have absolutely no power to change a situation at all. Rather, David brings his concerns to the Lord. What would our lives look like if we ceased to complain about all of our situations with others and rather brought our complaints to the Lord? When he brings his concerns to the Lord, notice that, that he doesn't even initially ask God of anything. Rather, it's as if he just, he just brings God up to speed on what is going on in his life. And it's not as if God doesn't know what is already happening in David's life. David knows something uh, about God, and he knows that God delights to hear the concerns and the cries of his people. And so it's not as if these, these things that David is going through are news to him, news to God, but God delights to hear his people cry to him. And notice firstly that David tells him what his enemies are doing, and secondly, he tells God what his enemies are saying of him. Look in verse 1. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. See, these two first verses here, uh, there's a word that is thematically coming back, and it's the word many. David was well aware that his situation was not limited to just a family affair, but rather his situation was a national crisis. He no longer enjoyed the blessing of a military fighting on his behalf. They had all turned against him. He no longer enjoyed the the blessing of friends and family that he could trust and and, and relay information to, for many had turned from him. Further, in verse 1, it reflects military language. Whereas David enjoyed immense popularity, David was now public enemy number one. Many were rising up to make sure that David lost not only his kingdom, but his own life. Many of us have seen how easily something like this can happen in our own lives. Many of us have gone through times and situations where the people that we've loved and the people that we have trusted have turned their backs on us and instead of making our lives more peaceful, they made our lives considerably more difficult. 
for those of us that have gone through something like that is doubly dif- difficult because though uh, the, the situation that we have gone through and going through right now is very hard, it is salt on the wounds to know that the very people that we would have confided with could potentially be using what they know about us against us. And this is a good reminder to those of us who have not been in a situation like that, that tides can turn very quickly, that people can change, situations can change. But here's the good thing. God doesn't change. God never changes. His love never fails, and it never gives up. And when things are beyond our control, we can go to Him, and we can tell Him what is happening? So not only does the, David tell the Lord that his, what his enemies are doing, but notice also that he tells God what they're saying. Look at verse 2. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. So not only do his enemies pose a physical threat, but his enemies also pose an, an emotional and a psychological threat here. Because the tides have turned against David, David's enemies believe, they believe themselves that God has forsaken David, and they want David to know that. They want David to believe that. They want him to get to the point where he believes that all his, all his options are expired, all his hope is gone, and that his best course of action is just to give up. Because those of us who have been through difficult times know that when all hope is gone, it's over. And they are trying to get David to that point where he has lost everything, including his God. In life, you will encounter this. You will hear this from three different types of enemies. You will hear this from Satan and his workers. The Hebrew word for Satan, it's hasatan. It literally means accuser. And that is what he does. He will, in difficult times, especially in times of opposition, when you're righteously fighting against evil or whether you are righteously fighting against sin in your life, he will try to convince you that there is no hope for you in God. He will try to get you thinking about things that you've done and said and thought and attack your self-worth and create doubt in your mind about your standing with God. He will try to make you believe that you've blown it, that you've lost all hope, and that you might as well give up. But he's not the only enemy. You may have actual people in your life that believe that your faith in God is ridiculous. They may bring up past events of what kind of person they think you are. They may even recruit people against you because there's power in numbers. But perhaps the enemy that we neglect the most is the enemy that's at war within us, that is at war in ourselves. You see, we don't necessarily need Satan and the world convincing us that God may be against us because you and I do a pretty good job in our own minds and our own hearts of doing that. 
But we don't have to agree with those voices. Rather, we need to look up. And we need to look to the cross of Christ. Turn over a few pages to Psalm 22 for just a moment. Though Psalm 22 was written by David, it was pointing towards the suffering of Christ on the cross on our behalf. And in his last few breaths, the text that Jesus pointed to was Psalm 22. Read with me in verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night I find no rest. So as David in Psalm 3 is completely surrounded by a multitude of enemies, yet the Lord was with him. Jesus hung on the cross with a multitude of enemies around him, and God abandoned him. God had forsaken Christ on our behalf because the only way for us to have God on our side was to make Jesus take the weight and punishment for our sins upon himself. Because God abandoned and forsook Jesus on the cross, God will never abandon you to your enemies. Because Christ paid the penalty for your sin and my sin and David's sin, we can go to God like David and say, Lord, I know what they're saying. I know what's going on in my mind. I know what's going on in my heart, but I know it's not true. I know it's not true because Christ died in my place. And because I trust in that, no evil can befall me. I will not fall into their lies because I trust in that I know that you are with me. So wherever you are in your life, trust Christ and bring your concerns to the Lord. But second, we need to recall the faithfulness of the Lord. Not only bringing our concerns to the Lord, but we need to recall the faithfulness of the Lord. When tough times come, I am convinced that too many Christians are content to fall into the trap of uh, being stuck in a perpetual complaint rather than fleeing to the grace that's available to, to them in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a time and a place for complaint and concern, and it should be reserved for prayer, but it should not be lingered on for very long. We must move to recalling the goodness and move to recalling the faithfulness of the Lord. In verse 3, David recalls uh, two things. He recalls who God is, and then he will, uh, in later verses, recall what God has done. Look with me in verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, 
my glory and the lifter of my head. So David here, again, he returns to military theme and remembers God as a warrior who protects and who fights on behalf of those whom he loves. David says that the Lord is a shield about him. Now, shield was a great thing in, in military battles back in, in that kind of military fighting because if you had spears or if you had arrows or if you had swords coming at you, you could use it to deflect all those things. But shields were very limited in their scope for your help. A shield could not protect you from enemies that are attacking you from the sides or attacking you from the back or attacking you from the top or coming at you from the bottom. But here, David says that the Lord is a shield about him, which means that the Lord is a shield that doesn't just attack us, that doesn't just defend us from the front, but the Lord is a shield that is all-encompassing. He protects us from the sides if enemies are coming from the side. He protects us from the back if enemies are coming that way. He protects us from the top if they're coming from that way. The Lord is a shield all about this. And if anyone has ever been involved in spiritual warfare, and if you've trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, then all of you have, we know that the enemy likes to attack us from any side that he can. Psalm 115, verses 9 through 11 says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their, guess what? Their shield. David then says that the Lord is his glory. The word glory here in this instance is pointing to worth and dignity and value. Have you ever had a conflict with someone that's so intense that you feel about two feet tall? Where you've been knocked down so bad that you feel like you have no self-worth, you have no self-value. Many times when we go through difficulties, it happens like this. And we see our dignity being attacked. But when we set our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, David says that he is our glory, that he is our sense of worth. It is the Lord Jesus Christ by whom we get our sense of dignity from. He alone is the one who our identity is rooted in. And when we anchor our souls in this truth, the world can say whatever they want about us. And it means nothing. What matters is what God thinks of us. And it is Him that bestows dignity and self-worth upon us. David also says that the Lord is the, is the lifter of his head. Now, in ancient Near East, it was, it, was, it was customary that when a king would defeat his enemies, he would make them bow down on the ground to him, and he would take his foot, and he would put his foot on the neck of his enemies to show his victory, to show his power, and to show how he has been a victor over this enemy. But if a king came across someone whom he found approval, and this person bowed down to the Lord, the, uh, to the king. 
the king could take him and lift up his head and give him a dignity that he did not have before. And David is essentially saying here that I know that the Lord is on my side because he has lifted my head in difficult situations before and that he will do it again as I go through this trial. He can lift my head high and I can go through this because he sustains me. He will do the same for you if you trust in him. So not only does he recount who the Lord is, but notice that he also recounts what the Lord has done. David has confidence not necessarily because he has read his Bible well, and as king he would have. He has confidence here, uh, not necessarily because uh, he's been educated. But David here has confidence because he recalls what the Lord has done for him in the past. He has seen God's faithfulness. He says in verse 4 that the Lord answers prayer. Look in verse 4. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. See, David knows that the source of his glory, the source of his comfort, the source of his stability is from the Lord. And he is completely unashamed about how he cries out. We live in a time and a culture where Christians are, are uh, wanting to have more and more quiet times. And those things are good. I think they're good. But David here doesn't bother with a quiet time. You would consider this here David's loud time. He's going to shout. He's going to cry out to the Lord. And he doesn't care who hears him because he has an audience of one. And he is going to shout off the rooftops for the Lord to hear his cry. In such times of distress, do you settle for quiet times? Or are, are you on your knees shouting, Lord, help me. I need you now. Verses 5 and 6 express David's confidence in answering prayer by relieving David of his anxiety. Verse 5 tells us that even though David is surrounded by a multitude of enemies and that enemies are encamped all around him, he is able to lie down and sleep. The stress and anxiety of the day can overwhelm us. Stress and anxiety, let's be honest. You ever gone through a stressful situation and it just makes you completely exhausted? Only to find that when you try to sleep, the situation is so stressful you can't even sleep can't get relief at all. The situation is hard. Sleeping is even harder. The lack of sleep 
during these times increases psychological disturbances, but when God's on our side, He can make us lie down. You know, the, the scholars point to this psalm being called a morning song. It was to be sung in the morning to proclaim God's faithfulness of allowing His saints to sleep throughout the night and get a good night of rest. The next psalm in Psalm 4 is considered an evening psalm. It's a prayer to be sung before the head hits the, the, the pillow in trust of God because the last verse says, in peace, I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, will make me dwell in, sta- in safety. How well are you sleeping, folks? How well is your trust in the Lord that you can lie down and sleep? When the Lord gives us the grace of sleep, it's much easier to stand in confidence on the day of battle. Verse 6 dramatically uh, is close to Psalm 23, 4, which you would recall says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So both instances, Psalm 23 and Psalm 3 here, tell us that when the Lord is on our side, though the world is coming, crashing down and pressing on us, we can stand without fear. Isaiah 54, 17 says that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. AJ is a lady of, she's only about one of 60 people in the entire world who suffers from something called hyperthymesia. And hyperthymesia is an extremely unique neurological condition in which people remember practically every single detail of their life. Uh, people like AJ, who suffer from uh, hyperthymesia, uh, often spend large amounts of time reminding themselves and stewing over the little details of everything that has happened in particular situations. You might not remember what you had for breakfast last Sunday, but people with hyperthymesia will remember what they had for breakfast 20 years ago on this day. It appears that it's like a recording device in the brain. It's like constantly flowing through your Facebook feed. Perfect remembrance. And while the condition of hyperthymesia enables you to remember almost anything, it leaves some harmful effects on the thinking ability. AJ is an example where she suffers a major uh, disruption due to the flood of memories. She's often exhausted by the uncontrollable stream of memories, and it's simply a burden. It seems as if she, she gets lost in the world of remembering things rather than living in the world that she does. I don't think any one of us, academians or not, would ever want hyperthymicia. But what if we had a version of that? that only focused on who the Lord is 
and what he has done. What if you and I had perfect recollection of everything that the Lord has done for us from the time that we were born until the time we're sitting in this seat? I believe that our lives would be less chaotic, less stressful, less worrisome, and every situation would be met with perfect trust instead of fear and panic. When we recall the Lord's faithfulness, who He is and what He has done, we can stand and confidently face our situations. So we need to recall the faithfulness of the Lord. But we also need to move beyond that and give our situation to the Lord. Give your situation over to the Lord. That's our third point today. Though this entire psalm is a prayer, David doesn't even ask anything of God until verses 7 and 8. In the beginning of verse 7, he asks that the Lord would rise up and fight for him. This is a direct contrast to what his enemies were doing. Remember in the beginning of the psalm, David said that many are rising up against me. And he gets to the end of the psalm now, and he goes to his warrior king and says, God, rise up for me. The next phrase alludes to how he wants God to fight for him. Look in the the second part of verse 7. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. So though this psalm is is a first of many kinds of psalms, it's also the first kind of psalm in the Psalter that's called an imprecatory psalm. And what an imprecatory psalm is, you see this all over the psalms, it is a psalm that asks God to physically intervene and hurt his enemies. Many modern readers take issue with this sort of psalm because it seems as if it goes against Jesus' directive for us to not return evil for evil. But here, David is not telling the Lord to seek and destroy his enemies, but rather he is asking God to intervene in such a way that his enemies don't have a stronghold on him anymore. He is asking God to lift that off of him and get some respite from what he is going through. And when David says that God strikes his enemy on the cheek, it's a slap in the face. It is an insult to enemies. It's a symbol that God has the upper hand in this, in this battle, not David's enemies. Further, David makes a fairly odd observation about God's dealing with his enemies. He says that God breaks the teeth of the wicked. He's <laughs> not saying God just kicked their teeth in. Rather, he is using the image of a wild animal that would be normally physically threatening to his prey, but when God intervenes, he figuratively takes out their teeth so all that they can do is gum you. It can be a lion, a bear, or a nasty dog. If they don't have teeth, They can't hurt you. 
takes the sting and the bite out of the attack. Finally, notice when, when God is on our side and we give our situation over to him, he not only fights on our behalf, but he also provides the victory for us. Verse 8 says that salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. In the book of Exodus, in chapter 14, the Israelites are getting nervous because they're running away from the Egyptian army and they, they kind of come to a, a roadblock of the Red Sea and they see the Egyptians coming toward them. Moses hadn't spread out the sea yet so the, the Israelites are getting sort of nervous. Moses goes before them. Moses doesn't necessarily like public speaking himself but he goes in front of all of Israel and he says, Fear not! Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work out for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And get this, Moses says, you only need to be silent. Hmm. How would you like someone to show up on the playground for you and you just you just sit down you just chill out and I'll take care of this Deuteronomy 130 tells us that the Lord who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did for you in Egypt before your eyes Deuteronomy 322 you shall not fear them for the Lord your God who fights for you Deuteronomy 20 verse 4 for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies. Notice it doesn't say with you. Fight for you to give you the victory. Joshua 23.10 One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he has promised you. Translation, friends, when God is on our side and when we give our situation over to the Lord and the Lord goes to bat for us, the Lord is the only person in the world that can bat a thousand. He never loses. God always wins. Deliverance and salvation only come from Him. It might not be in the manner that you expected or even wanted, but the Lord always comes through and His people are blessed as a result. There's an old hymn that summarizes this well. I must tell Jesus all of my trials. I cannot bear these burdens alone. In my distress, he kindly will help me. He ever loves and cares for his own. I must tell Jesus all of my troubles. He is a kind, compassionate friend. But if I ask him, he will deliver. And in my griefs, he will with me, he will blend. Tempted and tried, I need a great Savior, one who can help my burdens to bear. I must tell Jesus, I must tell Jesus, he all my cares and sorrows will share. Oh, how the world's evil allures me. Oh, how my heart is tempted to sin. I must tell Jesus, he will enable over the world the victory to win. I must tell Jesus,
I must tell Jesus. I cannot bear these burdens alone. I must tell Jesus. Jesus can help me. Jesus alone. Brothers and sisters, tell Jesus your concerns. Recount his faithfulness and give your situations over to him. And he will be on your side. Let's pray. Father, we want to give you our burdens. We want to give you our concerns, Lord. We can't, we can't bear these burdens alone. And so, Father, I ask that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that your Holy Spirit would come and enable us to give all of our cares and concerns to you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that I ask this. Amen. Let's stand and sing a song of response.
Friends, we don't have to go through life alone. We have a kind and compassionate Savior who died on our behalf and who rose to show his power over whatever it is that we go through. Go from here in the grace and the love and the mercy that is in Christ Jesus. Have a blessed afternoon. We'll see you later this evening.